This is the Bad Hops Podcast, a baseball podcast where we discuss everything but the box score. So if you're looking for the average pitch velocity of Tom the bartender Will Helmson or the strikeout to walk ratio of Tony the mechanic Phosis, this is not the place. But if you feel like ordering some garlic fries and Dippin' Dots from DoorDash, welcome. We're your hosts. I'm Jackie Micucci. And I'm Mark Butler. And today, we're delving into the side hustles of your favorite baseball players in between regular checks of our Venmo balances. Welcome to Bad Hops. Side hustles, Jackie. Everybody's got one these days, or two or three, or whatever it takes to stay alive in pandemic life. For sure. I will put a disclaimer in the intro. You did say your favorite baseball players. I would think we will be hard pressed to find anyone that would claim some of these folks as their favorite baseball players, but they're near and dear to me now because of their weird backstories. I mean, you never know. I mean, Tom Wilhelpson was kind of beloved for a while in Seattle. The bartender was my inspiration for this episode. And I, at some point, very quickly cast him off into the intro text and said, yeah, we we got other people we can talk about. That's fine. You know, I was thinking that, of course, one common thread that this podcast has, and I'm really not sure how it's become a common thread, but this is just the sort of weirdos that we are. You know, we talk about scrap metal a lot. I mean, as you do. (laughs) On this here baseball podcast. I was just kind of coming... The kind of a loosey-goosey Google search on, on MLB players with weird jobs. And literally the first individual article about someone's side hustle that came up was Chris Davinsky, who is a relief pitcher for, or was a relief pitcher for the Houston Astros. He's had Tommy John surgery, so he may not be anyone's pitcher mm-hmm. uh, for the foreseeable future. But in the off-season he would drive around in his pickup truck and pick up scrap metal and sell it for, you know, for pennies on the dollar as you do with scrap metal. I'm just going to stop you for a second. People still sell scrap metal. That's still a thing. I think the the big money is in copper wires (laughs) 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 these days, but I feel like most of that's been scavenged. Yeah. I I don't know. And I, I apologize to our listeners. I did not research the going rate for scrap metal. I appreciate his dedication to the ecology for recycling and reusing. Picking up scrap metal in your pickup truck with their notoriously low miles per gallon average, it makes me think that his profit margin may not have been super tremendous. Okay, I googled scrap metal prices and (laughs) everything that comes up, by the way, is copper. The top prices are for copper. As far as I know, Chris Davinsky's nickname is Devo, which I I applaud. It's not Snips (laughs) or it's not a copper top or anything to suggest that he's shimmying up telephone poles and stripping streetlights of the wiring that they need to continue working. I recall fondly of the story that you told in one of our earliest episodes about the 1942 Boston Braves New York Giants game where kids got a free ticket to the game if they brought scrap metal to the ballpark and then the kids got bored and stormed the field and the the uh, the game ended in a forfeit I would have never have guessed when we first sat down and talked about hey let's do a podcast about the weird side of baseball 
that we would be talking about scrap metal this much. Maybe I think maybe we sh- we need to talk about the the fluctuations in the market. Maybe that's a whole nother episode. Maybe. And, uh, Maybe, but as you said, it's 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 copper. The money is in copper, kids. If you want to if you want to find scrap metal, make sure it's copper. Don't believe what those people are saying about that you uh, need to hoard gold for the coming apocalypse because I don't I don't know where you're going to be able to spend it. I would say copper first, then maybe Bitcoin, then worry about gold. I suppose we should probably talk about, about uh, the topic. We, nah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I've lost interest in the topic. No, the elephant in the room, and by elephant, I mean the thing that sprays water all over things like cars in Las Vegas. There's a side hustle that you had a close encounter with recently. I did. I was very excited about that side hustle. I feel like it's not even, it probably doesn't qualify as a side hustle because I believe that Jose Canseco's Showtime Car Wash might be the hustle. I think it is. I think this is his career now, but I was very excited. I told you I was in the back of a lift. I was heading to dinner on the strip and, and my significant other was in a conversation with the lift driver and I was just looking out the window and oh my God, there it was, a thing of beauty, Jose Canseco's Car Wash. And I couldn't interrupt anyone to to see it, although um, maybe the lift driver had gone there, so he wouldn't have cared. But I was very excited. It made me wish I had a car. Probably speaks volumes to our friendship that I got a frantic text from you probably seconds after you saw it. For sure. How come you didn't tell me about Jose Canseco's car wash? Well, yeah, you have you have your trip. You go to Vegas at least once a year. I mean, I I go every now and then, but uh, I was like, how did you not tell me about this? Yeah, I figured I figured you knew everything you needed to know about Jose Canseco, which is ball bounced off head, finger fell off, got reattached, fell off again. And I don't know, lots of beefs with other players. So I'm sure we'll come back to this topic because it it it, it amuses me to no end to talk about Jose Canseco's Showtime car wash. Let, let's do side hustles. Okay. I promised an economics lesson. I feel like recently we did a therapy session. So now let's do a an arena style economics 101 big university chat. But I promised to try to make it interesting. Okay. For the first time ever in podcast history. I know usually that, you know, someone sees economic podcasts, they're like, oh yeah, I really want to listen to this in my spare time. Exactly. It almost boggles my mind to think about that any Major League Baseball player needs a side hustle in this day and age. Today, it is true. I think with minimum salary is well over half a million dollars a year, you don't need a side hustle. And that's, I think, now we will probably see people doing things where they don't have to lift a finger like NFTs or other weird digital transactions. But it really wasn't that long ago when I was a kid and first got into baseball these guys weren't making a lot of money. No. The superstars weren't making a lot of money. The superstars were making five-figure salaries in some cases. I can only imagine if you were a, a scrubby platoon player that only played two or three games a week, you might have been making almost nothing. Some people will complain the baseball season is too long, but you still get six months off. And if you don't have a salary during that time, you go broke pretty fast, especially if you felt like you were living that high life. Every player, I think, had a side hustle at, at one point in time. And I was reading some interesting facts. And I'm, I found an article on Medium. Mm-hmm. When, when ball players have off-season jobs, 
And it talked about the fact in 1947, the minimum MLB salary was $5,000. This was around the, the time that someone like Babe Ruth, who had who had retired and I think passed away by that point, but he had broken records by making $70,000 a year. So all of these guys did need to work, but even people who were the, the kind of the super studs of the game that were winning World Series, like Jim Palmer, who you and I remember that Jim Palmer's primary side hustle was selling underwear. Oh yeah, the jockey ads of a very splayed out Jim Palmer on billboards. I, st- I still remember them. You were rocking, rocking the tidy whities But before he became that big of a deal, when he was 20 years old, he helped the Orioles win the World Series. And then promptly, even though he made a, an $11,000 bonus, he had to go home and sell suits at a clothing shop. <laughs> a shop called Hamburgers Clothing. <laughs> Did you get a hamburger with your suit? I, I now feel like Hamburgers Clothing is sort of like, I picture more of a like one of those weird shops in in Shibuya where it has nothing to do with clothing or with hamburgers. But I'm guessing in downtown Baltimore, they sold a lot of three-piece suits and the store was owned by Mr. Hamburger. For sure. Those <laughs> double-breasted three-piece suits? Yes. It, probably Mr. Hamburger the third by, by this point in time. If somebody that won the World Series and actually got an, a bonus for his performance that more than doubled his current salary... If he had to go sell suits in the offseason, again, what do the scrubs do? As we know, in the in Major League Baseball, they were making decent money for, for playing a game for most of the history of the game. Negro League players were not making nearly that much money, so they had to, to scrap around even more. One thing that came to my attention big time last year, or two years ago now, sorry, that in 2020, we barely had any baseball, but there was no minor league baseball. Almost every minor league baseball player was already on a survival salary and they just didn't get paid. A lot of these guys probably had to reconsider what they were going to do with their life if they were going to wait for baseball to come back, if it was ever going to come back. I'm the first to complain about a lazy multimillionaire that's signed a contract for $20 million a year and is kind of dogging it on the field and or trying to hustle us into merchandise with his name on it. But it's an interesting reminder that all of these guys did have to probably have more than one side hustle or to actually kind of go out and do hard labor. I was reading about my pal Mordecai Three Finger Brown, which I (laughs) I love bringing him up just because. Well, because uh, I mean, yeah. Why miss up an opportunity to say uh, Mordecai Three Finger Brown? I know. Greatest nickname in baseball. No offense to Tom the bartender, Wilhelmson, or even Tony the mechanic, Bosis. And of course, as a kid, I was, I just figured that was like a cute way that described his grip or something. But uh, yeah, he, uh, he got that nickname because, well, I, I think, you know, Jackie, he, he got that nickname because he, he had two of his fingers cut off in an accident. <laughs> you know, they were nothing if not literal back then. And this was in the early 1900s, so I, I think it, you know, this is definitely a test of the, the comedy equals tragedy plus time. He was missing two of his fingers. He helped the Cubs win a National League pennant in 1906, and then he had to go work in a coal mine. Jim Palmer kind of got lucky working for old man hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> Not having to go in the coal mine. Of course, now we've we've had the the players' union in the early 70s. We've had collective bargaining agreements. We've had the a very robust and well-defined free agency market set up 
so that players, once they walk through the dugout of a big league stadium for the first time, they're set. They, they, they do not need to hustle. But it's an interesting reminder the next time you go see a triple A game, or I highly recommend a low A game if you really want some weird entertainment. Those guys are making next to nothing. And if you wait around long enough, you might see them at the counter of the jack in the box near the <laughs> stadium. Just remember to tip your bartenders. I guess that's that's ultimately my the, the moral of the story. But I think those guys, especially back in in the day, like not only did they have to work in the offseason, I think they needed to set themselves up when they were no longer playing baseball because they weren't getting those giant salaries. So yeah, they had if they were running a, a suit shop or you know, car dealerships were always a big retired athlete thing to do. They needed something, right? Because they 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 had they have to support a family at that point. And when you're playing baseball, I don't know how that translates to a business world job, especially if you weren't a big name. I feel like the, the big names probably had an advantage, like, hey, come work here. We can say, you know, your name ties into our store and that helps bring in customers. A lot of these guys who, you know, had short careers or had a, just had a cup of coffee, like they really needed to figure out what they were going to do after baseball because it wasn't, it wasn't the way it is now. Cause I think even now, some of the guys who have, even the ones who have short careers, they can, you know, they're still like speaking and autograph opportunities that, that didn't exist prior to the modern game. Probably even as late as the mid seventies, your retirement plan was essentially the, the goodwill of other men. Yep. Uh, that it's like, oh, hey, whoa! I, I, you used to play for the St. Louis Browns. I'll buy you a, I'll buy you this round of drinks or, or something like that. I remember meeting some some quote unquote big league players when I was a kid. Ray Sadecki, who was a friend of my dad's, I actually looked him up and found out that he was a big deal pitcher for a couple of years. But by the time I met him, he was just this guy kind of hanging around Kansas City looking for the next thing. And it definitely wasn't baseball at that point. I think he was in his mid-40s. And it was a eye-opening experience because I, I had no idea who the guy was. I just assumed that he lived in a castle, had an army of robot butlers and house cleaners and, and people like that. But he, he would always accept that round on someone else at the bar. I mean, who could blame him? I certainly would. <laughs> I'm never going to say no to free drinks. That's no. that's that's for sure. No. Speaking of side hustles, speaking of people that I really didn't know that much about, I've uncovered a few people. I know you've uncovered a few. I, I figured let's uh, now that the economics lesson is done, mm -hmm. can we talk about insurance? Sure. Do you want to sell I, me some insurance? Yeah. Is this podcast protected, by the way? Is there an umbrella coverage that somebody trips and falls while listening to it? No, I think we're on our own. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I probably need, no to work delete, I need to delete this part because someone will trip while listening to this and say, well, he, he, he did say. The power of suggestion. <laughs> yes. The reason that I started looking up this actuarial science, <laughs> I grew up in a college town and the kind of the running joke was that if you met somebody that used to be a big deal on the college football team or college basketball team, they would stick out their impressive mitts to shake hands with you, squeeze harder than they needed to and say, I don't know if you remember me, but I was on the varsity team back in the day and I'm selling uh, insurance now, working for Prudential and wondering if you guys are covered. And thinking, well, I guess this is where actual 
amateur athletes go to die is in the insurance industry. And I think there were quite a few pro athletes that went on to this business. But I fell into the story of Bullet Bob Turley. I'm going to keep saying Bullet Bob until I can no longer try to make him interesting. As I was reading through his story, he's one of those guys that I would say is unremarkably remarkable. He was a... He didn't hang out with Mickey Mantle. He wasn't like a party guy. There's a, a great quote. Casey Stengel, who was the manager of the Yankees at, at the time, was praising, I guess, I don't know. I, I feel like Casey Stengel didn't actually praise anybody. So I'm just going to read the quote about uh, Bob Turley. Stengel said, he don't smoke, he don't drink, and he don't chase around none. But he can't win as good as that drunk Don Larson that I got. <laughs> he had a great fastball. He was reliable. He would come to work. He would do what he needed to do. And when things were really shining for him, he was as as good as anybody in the game. In 1958, he basically salvaged the World Series for the Yankees, ended up getting the Cy Young Award that year, and then kind of fell apart the, the year after. But I think he had a pretty solid run. A sensible guy who, as Stengel said, don't smoke, don't drink, don't chase around none. Mm-hmm. Probably always had one eye on the future. Even though he won the Cy Young, he, in the offseason, was selling insurance. And he worked in an agency with a catcher from the Orioles named Gus Triandos, who I don't know that much about. Bob Turley loved selling insurance. And so he was excited to go back in the offseason and sell insurance. And he got fired by a couple companies because he was trying to save his customers money. So he sounds like a real kind of boy scout. And but this is probably why I didn't know anything about Bob Turley until I started researching this, because he was no catfish hunter. He was no Doc Ellis. He was no, not one of these colorful weirdos that had all these off-field exploits. He left Yankee Stadium to go sit in an office and sell insurance. Good for him. The work ethic is very admirable. The work ethic was more than admirable in his case because he ended up starting an agency with a fella named... Pause, pause, pause. This is how unremarkable the story is. John Smith? Was that the guy he started? It's, it's almost John Smith. Art Williams. He met a fellow agent, Art Williams, who shared his view of the insurance business. And so Art Williams and Bob Turley started a firm called A.L. Williams & Associates, which then morphed into Primerica, which is still one of the biggest financial services and insurance companies worth billions and billions of dollars. You told me that you've actually met Bullet Bob. I have met Bullet Bob. I met Bullet Bob and Moose Garen, Johnny Blanchard, and Tom Tresh. This was back in 2007. I got invited, a friend of mine, a coworker, her brother's company had a suite that they had rented out at Yankee Stadium for Old Timers Day. Uh-huh. And my friend was, was actually a Mets fan, but she was going to go anyway. And she's, she invited me. She was very nice. She's like, you know, you'll appreciate this more than, than, than I. And got to go. Her brother's selling point was like, hey, we've got a suite. We don't have to piss with the peasants. I'm like, okay, that's the selling point. Great. <laughs> And I was excited, you know, to be able to go to a suite at Yankee Stadium, see the old timers, the old timers game, you know, see the Yankees play. But somewhere along the line, I guess it was like after like, I know it was in between the old timers game and the, the start of the actual game. 
And all of a sudden, the old timers came to us. And so these three guys, including old Bob, they come into the suite and they immediately, because these were guys who were in their 40s and 50s, they immediately started to like swarm these old timers. My friend Mary and I, we just kind of sat back and watched and they signed autographs. I have an autograph picture of, of all of them. And they came over to us because we were like one of the few females that were actually in the suite and we weren't like trying to grab their attention. So they came over and they started chatting with us. It might've been Moose Garen who showed us his, his World Series ring. They all had their World Series rings on and we were trying them on and they were big. And this guy comes over as he's talking to us and he kept asking these guys like, so what was Mickey Mantle like? What was the Mick like? And <laughs> over and over again. And I'm pretty sure it was Bob Turley who kept, kept saying to him, we didn't hang out. Like we weren't like the, I, I didn't travel in his circles, but no, really, what was he like? He's like, I, I didn't hang out in the circle. Basically saying I wasn't a, you know, I wasn't a drunk. I wasn't partying with Mickey. I was a family guy. Leave me alone. <laughs> it was great fun. I mean, they came over, they were very nice. And one of the things I thought of as we're talking about side hustles is that I knew these guys didn't make a lot of money. So I did not begrudge them the fact that they got paid to come into the suite for this company to sign autographs and kind of glad hand because, you know, they're playing days. They made peanuts compared to uh, the, the guys on the field today, but they were also very lovely they were, they were very talkative, happy to speak to us. So the moral of the story is just sit back and watch. And if you're one of the few females in the room, you're going to get the attention from these guys. So <laughs> I enjoyed it. It was, it was a good time. Bullet Bob Turley, whose highest salary as a baseball player in the early 60s was $35,000 a year, became a multimillionaire not from baseball and not from old timers appearances with a little like, uh, hey, here's a C note for you, Bullet Bob. I'm sure he probably would have taken the money and invested it wisely. I think these guys made more than a C-note to show up at the suite. But yeah, see, a C-note per handshake and possibly. Maybe. <laughs> I did not get a final number on his net worth, but I, I would say millions and millions of dollars. And I was thinking, well, what a perfect role for a guy's side hustle as a baseball player who was a unremarkably remarkable player on the field that he would go into insurance and build a business and ultimately reap the rewards of, of hard work and, and perseverance. So good for Bullet Bob Turley. That's right. Good for Bullet Bob. He didn't hang out with the Mick and he didn't need to have a liver transplant and he didn't piss away all his money. And he was a nice man. Before I go Cinemax after dark for my next <laughs> Well, gonna, good, I'm glad. I would like you to tell me about who you've run into, because I think you found some interesting cats with some interesting side hustles. I have. And one I was kind of surprised about that he had a side hustle, given, given who he is. So I'm going to read you a quote. It's a rough business. You've got to give them what they want. And that's from a 1969 AP article on Lou Brock that appeared in the Nevada Daily Mail. It's not about baseball. It's about his attempt to break into the flower shop business. <laughs> Lou Brock, he had a number of side hustles. So he definitely was looking into a number of different businesses, including, you may recall, the Brock umbrella, that umbrella hat that he, I didn't realize that he was the guy who made that famous. So, what? Yeah. No, I so, didn't know that either. Wow. Good for yep. Lou Brock. Yeah, that was that Be was his speedy, deal. speedy on the basis and speedy on the innovation front as well. Exactly. 
the flower shop was something that he was actually quite passionate about. It was a success for him and he had no experience in it. When people would ask him, well, you have no experience in this, he would respond, did anybody ever ask Rockefeller why he went into the oil business? So basically, like, don't get in my business. Like, Rockefeller didn't know about oil. I don't know about flowers. So, hey, what <laughs> what, what's going to stop me? The shop was unassuming. It was called the flower shop on purpose. There was nothing to say that Lou Brock had anything to do with it, although... People in the know in St. Louis, especially the kids, they would come in and they would want to see him and get an autograph. And he obliged because, you know, Lou is that kind of guy. But this article about his the florist shop was quite entertaining. Someone asked him, so why a flower shop? And he said, this is like any other enterprise. It fills a need and business is servicing a need, right? That, that mm-hmm. makes absolute sense. That's some Bob um, Turley talk there. It is, right? From, from Lou. So there you go. Yeah. As I said, he admittedly was not a floral expert, but he said he had a general working knowledge of the business. One of the quotes in this article I love, he said, I've tried a couple of flower arrangements. Once on Thanksgiving, I did one for myself. And on the way out, three people wanted to buy it. I told them I couldn't sell it because it was done by an amateur. So he wanted to make sure that he was selling quality goods. This is very sweet. And as you know, Jackie, I don't like to say those words very often. I'd rather say something mean and snarky, but many, many props to Lou Brock for this attitude. I think he had the shop for a number of years and he was involved in a number of other business opportunities, but this was kind of something he was passionate about. So yeah, Lou Brock florist, stealing his way, stealing a base, bringing a nice bouquet in the interim. You know, he left the showy stuff on the field. Well, I mean, you put a little baby's breath in in any arrangement, though, and that's... No baby's breath. No baby's That's the big leagues right there. (laughs) I know, strictly triple A. That is actually, that's single A. No baby's breath. So what else you got? One of the best things about this side hustle that you and I are doing here is that sometimes you, like I said, you start by thinking about like a cute story like Tom the bartender Wilhelmson. I don't know if you knew this about Tom, Jackie, but uh, in the off-season, he worked as a bartender. <laughs> Did he? Is that what uh, they called him, the bartender? I thought it was, I don't know, because he could just set up all the, I don't know. I don't, yes. I don't have something clever to say. So. Uh, honestly, I, the, and I'm, I've run all of my Tom Wilhelmson material into the ground at this point. But then, as I was researching weird jobs, I found... Interesting little tidbit on mental floss about a guy called Don Rudolph, but then I kept poking at it. And yeah, let's talk about Patty Wagon. Ooh. The co-ed with the educated torso. The educated torso? (laughs) These were simpler times. Don Rudolph was a pitcher of no great remarkable talent. He pitched for the White Sox a little bit, went into the minors, and had a very, very picturesque circuit in 1959. He went from playing for the uh, Seattle Rainiers minor league team to Havana. Wow. And he pitched for the Sugar Kings and then back to Indianapolis. That's the trifecta of my life, which I never wish to complete. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. He first pitched in the, in the majors in 1957, but while he was pitching for the White Sox uh, single a team, he met a woman in a nightclub named Patty Wagon one of the top 10 strippers in the country at that time. I have no idea how that list is compiled. And I turned safe search off 
on Google, mm-hmm. and I still couldn't find a list of top 10 strippers from 1954. Did you? But I'm sure your search results were quite interesting, nonetheless. They, they, they were fascinating, not for what I actually saw, but what other people saw in the 50s, which I, I think was kind of the, the most interesting thing about this. So to make it clear that this is for work and we can deduct this all from our taxes, this mm-hmm. is about baseball. Because Don Rudolph, who, while pitching for the White Sox, also was the manager of his soon-to-be wife, Patricia's burlesque career. Patricia Brownell, who adopted the name Patty Wagon. I like it. I like yeah. it, actually. And I'm just going to I'm gonna say this again because I can't get enough of, of her catchphrase, the co-ed with the educated torso. Don Rudolph became... There needs to, there needs to be a t-shirt with that. Yeah. Someone I, needs to come up with a t-shirt with that. There is a, a, a guy that dedicated more than a year of his life to write a book about Patty Wagon. And, not, and right. so Don Rudolph is actually a secondary character. That's what um, we should be. We may come back to this topic, but right. Don Rudolph, his first job working for his, his I think, then fiance was he worked as a catcher, a catcher of clothes. as <laughs> She threw them off to the side of the stage. And then I know we're going to be talking about player managers in a later episode, but we he, are. of course was a player for the White Sox, but then a manager of his burlesque model stripper wife. For 19, let's say 57 to 1960, that is not the part of Eisenhower's America that I thought would have flown with morals clauses for his team or for Major League Baseball. So what I really found fascinating was that on Don Rudolph's 1959 baseball card, Mm There is a little cartoon illustration. You remember when baseball cards had the little cartoons on the back of the like I sort heard of the like, little cartoons on the back. Do they not do that? They probably don't. They're not, no, they're not the, NFTs. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we will make an NFT uh, related to Patty Wagon. On the back of Don Rudolph's 1959 baseball card, though, there is a picture of a girl dancing on a table. Very simple, <laughs> like Bazooka Joe, Sorry. sort of like looking. <laughs> A girl dancing on it. Okay. Very wholesome. Yeah. Yeah. With the caption, Dawn's wife is a professional <laughs> dancer. Well, she I, is. <laughs> I guess if you had to read between the lines, and in 1959, I think those were that's all you could read, right? If you, you were could. sort of a yeah. revert sort of person. It's like professional dancer. What? Well, if she works for the Bolshoi. Perhaps she's danced for Alvin Ailey. Did Alvin Ailey exist back then? I'm sure he existed, probably as a kid playing stickball or something. That felt like maybe a little inside joke that slipped through. But then I found a clipping from the Post-Gazette in February 1957. I think it's the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, but the, the clipping was very weathered and scanned in by somebody. Point is that it looked like it was an actual media outlet and not just some sort of mimeograph. I don't, I don't, I don't know what people read for Hello, their pamphlet. Yeah. For their, for their naked fun times back then, I guess there was playboy and stuff like this, but this was a newspaper article mm-hmm. and it had a picture of Don and Patty together. And the headline was curves are good. Curves. It, curves. Oh, curves. I was curves. Said, curves are good. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting headline. Yeah, that's that's the 2022 version of the moral cesspool that we, we live in. But yeah, sure. so 1957, a newspaper article said curves are good. And the subhead said his on field, hers on stage. Mm-hmm. There were no, no dancing around, pardon the pun, Patty's day job or night job. Mm-hmm. 
Apparently, Don kept the marriage secret to his team for a while, but then clearly newspaper articles and tops knew all about it. And apparently that was fine. And again, this is this is the hyper-moral late 50s, the happy days period. Mm-hmm. So I was just very fascinated that he, it's not that he got away with it, but he didn't get in trouble for something that probably could have gotten him fired. Wouldn't have been unreasonable. The funny thing is, I was like, well, who was the owner of the White Sox? It was he pitched during the end of the Comiskey family's run, and he left the White Sox just as Bill Veck, the madman of of baseball ownership, took over. And I would have thought that he would have probably had Patty throughout the first pitch at at most games. (laughs) He ended up with a very conservative ownership group compared to if he had stuck around for one more season, would have ended up with one of the weirder, wilder owners of baseball, which I think is probably, we probably need to get into the the Bill Vex and uh, Charlie O'Finley and other sort of deranged owners at some point. But Um, yeah. There were many a quote unquote colorful owner that make George Steinbrenner look like, you know, a church lady. I don't know, Jackie, you're going to have to, if you've got anybody else you want to talk about, I have run the gamut from the sacred to the profane, from insurance to stripping. My next one is not as colorful as stripping, but definitely interesting. This player, his name is Richie Hebner. I think that's how you pronounce it. He was a first round pick back in 1966, and he had a pretty respectable big league career, and he spent it mostly with the Pirates. He did play, I think, for Detroit for a period of time, but I think his career was mainly with Pirates. Hebner would, in the off-season, head back home, and he was part of the family business. His family business was in Massachusetts, digging graves. So he was dun, a grave dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So he was a grave digger. So you don't want to, you don't want to, you didn't want to like cross this guy because he was a grave digger. Apparently, he earned thirty-five dollars a grave, and he kept doing this grave digging long after his playing days. He said, I dug graves for 35 years with a pick and shovel. Apparently the family owned the cemetery in Massachusetts, which I wasn't aware. I I just, I just never thought of how cemeteries work, but I never thought of like family owned cemetery. I'm, I'm sure now I'm sure that's how they started. And then now they're just big conglomerations like every other business, but yeah, his family owned a cemetery and he was a grave digger. And he said, I don't know if a lot of people believed it because I was in the big leagues, but back back then you didn't make money. Certainly not the money you're making now. You give a shovel to a guy in the big leagues now and they'll laugh at you, but I enjoyed it and it didn't bother me. I'm not afraid to work, he said. I said for a while he did play for the Tigers. The Tigers minor league team, the West Michigan Whitecaps, they ended up having a bobblehead of good old Hebner probably about 10, 20 years ago. And it was him in a Detroit Tigers uniform holding a shovel with a plaque underneath that said grave digger. So, you know, he wasn't afraid to roll up his sleeves, dig a grave, be involved in the family business. I I don't know. He actually did have some involvement in baseball after his uh, playing career, but I I don't don't know. Maybe, maybe Ted Williams should have gotten in touch with him. Maybe he would have been better off having a great grave dug for him <laughs> as opposed to what happened to poor dead. But uh, yeah, it was a grave digger. I just love the image that this invokes because I don't know, you think of like closers, right? You think of mm-hmm. like uh, Al Herbrowski or Raleigh Fingers or guys with like the crazy facial hair, 
or the guys that aren't afraid to throw a little bit wild to like try to scare people. If you are facing off against a guy that digs graves and he just like could stand there and kind of glare at you. I don't know if this guy had a sense of humor or not. It sounds like he could probably be as stoic as he needed to be. You're not going to pitch inside on a guy like that. That's like, he's not afraid of death. So he's not afraid to come like hit you with a bat. And he knows how to use a shovel too. And he, and also his family owns a graveyard. So they may never see you again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk about convenient, right? It's like, Bob Turley might have sold one-stop shopping for all of your financial planning and insurance needs, but if if your family owns a graveyard, you don't have to offer the full suite of goods and services. You're just like, you know what? You can just pay us. For what? It's like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Maybe they should have partnered. I don't know. (laughs) All All your needs. During life, after life. But I would also imagine that digging graves was also a good way to stay in shape. I mean, I think now what they do probably do everything with machines, but back then, you know, old shovel, pickaxe, there you go. The the, the dude's probably got major guns, right? Like I, I I think probably well, digging it's all it's whole body, right? Yeah. Like you you you're bending your knees on the on the, the scoop and then you're uh you're, you're pulling the arms in and out. Yeah, he's probably, uh, I'm not going to get in a fight with the guy. No, definitely not. And I would think $35 a grave back in the day, what was 1966? That's probably, that's good money. I mean, you're you're earning it, but it's good money. I mean, no offense to Lou Brock. I mean, how much was he selling those, <laughs> those arrangements for? Probably 2 or $3? Well, I think Lou Brock's career was a little bit uh, bigger than uh, Richie Hebner. Just yeah. slightly, just slightly. <laughs> Is there anybody that's an obstetrician in the uh, off season so we could go cradle to the grave here? <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. But no, unfortunately, I have not run into an obstetrician baseball player. Not yet, anyway. There's still time. I feel like a part-time doctor is probably not a doctor that maybe is for you. Probably not. Obstetrician usually has odd hours. Not, not very predictable. Right. It's like, oh, I'm in the playoffs. Sorry, you're gonna have to tell that baby to wait. It's like, sorry, all my all of my expectant mothers have to have scheduled C-sections. Sorry. <laughs> so, Mark, we've we've been talking about life and death. We've got our grave digger baseball player. Now, I think you have something in the same field, someone else to talk about who has something to do with the the macabre part of life or death? I think, honestly, I feel like I've got a blockbuster deal to put together in the this off-season here. Um, I don't even know if Richie Hebner is still alive, but if he is, if he would like to team up with Andre Dawson, Andre the Hawk Dawson, I stumbled across this, and it's not really a side hustle, but it's actually very sweet since we're talking about digging graves. Andre Dawson, the great expo and great cub and just kind of a sweet person, owns a funeral home in Florida. He believes it's his life's calling. It seems like he's just like this real like kind of gentle giant and people freak out when they come in because most people that book his services aren't aware that it's the Andre Dawson funeral home. It's it's I, I, I like Lou Brock. I think it, it just goes under a very funeral services kind of name, but he takes it very seriously. He does a lot of the the work, he will carry the caskets, he will comfort the bereaved. And I was, was just thinking, I, you know, Andre Dawson was this heavy hitting stud from the 80s. And I, it just, you love to see it. It's kind of like an amalgamation of Richie Hebner's career and Lou Brock's kind of sweet 
hardworking attitude. I don't plan to die in Florida, but if I do, could you uh, could you make sure that the hawk takes care of me on on my way out? Absolutely, absolutely. I really hope you don't die in Florida either. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is, I think, this is like a living will. I would need to ask uh, Bob Turley's uh, people if that would uh, trigger my life insurance policy or not. But yeah, so Andre Dawson, uh, hats off to his. Uh, I guess it's his main hustle now. You're not really hustling if you're in the funeral business. No, you're not. You're, people you're are just working dying. Hard. People are just dying to see him. Sorry. Hey, that that sounds like one of my jokes. It does. That was that was a dad joke. Sorry. <laughs> and I know you got one more interesting cat that you turned up. One more interesting cat, and he only recently passed away. This guy lived uh, quite quite long. I think he was ninety six, and he just passed last year. And I'm talking about Bobby Brown. No, not that Bobby. Dun, Brown. Dun, 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 dun. I'm talking about Bobby Brown, who played for the New York Yankees as a third baseman and won four World Series rings with the Yankees. Now, Bobby wasn't a particularly amazing player, um, but he also had, he was one of these guys who had a knack for for the offseason. Like he had great stats in the offseason. While he finished his career a 279 hitter, which nowadays is actually that's not an unrespectable. In the playoffs, he hit 439. He was 18 for 41. But wow. that makes sense. This guy was cool under pressure because he was also, he was a doctor. So his career, kind of, he, he was born in Seattle, by the way, and he attended Stanford University. He went back and forth between going to school. He enlisted in World War II, but because he was a pre-med student, he was actually assigned stateside, but he was also able to play baseball. So after his stint was up, he started playing baseball for the New York Yankees. But he was also he was also a doctor and he served again. He served in Korea. So he went back and forth serving in two different wars in Korea. He saw a little bit more action and then he went back to playing again. He wasn't quite as good. But his medical expertise came in handy at least one time, a famous time in, in 1951. He was called off the field prior to a game to examine manager Casey Stengel, who had a kidney stone and had become nauseous. So having a player who was also a doctor did come in handy. But he ended up becoming a very well-respected cardiologist, had a, a long career as a doctor. He served into, I think he was the American League president at one time. So he went back and forth between baseball and between being being a doctor and really had quite the esteemed career. And he said, while he was still playing, he said, inevitably, there will be a day when I will have to say to myself, the time has come. Hang up your spikes in your uniform, put away the bats and get down to working out the oath of Hippocrates or the Hippocratic Oath, as you and I know it. Or that thing that the doctors say. The thing that doctors say. So yeah, Bobby Brown, really interesting dude. I would, I always remember when they would announce him, he would, he would go to Old Timers Day quite a bit, and he was probably there when I saw him, like when I saw good old Bob Turley, and they would always announce that he had been a doctor. And when I was a kid, I was just like blown away. I'm like, how could you be a doctor and a baseball player? I don't get it. How did that work? But apparently, he went back and forth. You did things back in the day, right? You were able to go to war, come back, play, go to another war. So it was a little bit different. Yeah, and when you were a kid, you also asked, how does he sing Candy Girl? <laughs> um, I, I'm putting the brakes on as many Bobby Brown jokes as I can tell. I mean, it's, I mean he's really the, the exact opposite of Bobby Brown. <laughs> yeah, and he yeah. never played, played for Houston. 
he never played for Houston. He was... <laughs> I think it speaks volumes to how this episode went. Not that I'm going to give it an instant rating other than A+. Casey Stengel, who is an interesting, interesting, colorful person, has tried to creep into this conversation twice tonight. And we keep beating him back down because this episode had everything. We got grave diggers. Yep. We've got funeral homeowners. We've got strippers. We've got insurance agents. I mean, this we've we we got a lovely centerpiece on the table with no baby's breath in it. <laughs> no baby's breath, never. And scrap metal. There's scrap metal too. Can't so. can't forget about scrap metal. Had it all. There are so many more side hustles. So I think we're going to come back to this, and uh, we're we're, we're going to need some of these guys to s- step up their game posthumously. No one's side hustling in in 2022. Minor leaguers, go for it. Do something interesting. The fans are heading home. The grounds crew is on the field, and we will see you next time at the ballpark. Hey, that's our pal Ron Lewis on the Stadium Oregon, and I'm Mark Butler. And I'm Jackie Macucci. And this was Bad Hops. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of Bad Hops is prohibited. Unless you like us, review us, or subscribe to Bad Hops. Find us at at Bad Hops Podcast on Insta and everywhere else. All right, get back to work, Jackie. All right, no baby's breath. <laughs>